All right, here we are with Sponsored by Nobody. We have an interview today. Gnome and their Kickstarter for Skulldiggers. You might remember Gnome as being the creator of Fellowship, that game we never stop talking about, that we never stop having fun with. My name is Devin, and today, of course, we have... Peter. And... And Gnome. So, Skulldiggers, that is going to be going up, uh, if my calendar in the bottom right is correct, this Friday, April the 24th, right? Yes. Excellent. So this will be a this will be one of the interviews that happens the quickest to the actual air date. It's only like a couple days away. So I mean, it's uh, also the only one I've got scheduled. So it might be the only one. We'll see. <laughs> oh no. All right. Well, could you introduce yourself, Gnome, and introduce um, Skulldiggers to us? Give us a brief kind of overview of what uh, we're looking at. Hi, I'm Gnome. I write tabletop games. Um, you may have heard from some folks who like Fellowship for some reason. Um, yeah, there's no I... prestige classing or multi-classing, so it's a very niche game. Yeah, it's so weird. Um, not that popular. No, uh, no I've also AC. Written... <laughs> I've also written Panic at the Dojo and Final Bid, both of which have elements in this new game, Skulldiggers. Um, Skulldiggers is a dungeon-delving horror game about the horror of living your life paycheck to paycheck as a dungeon diver. This doesn't oh, sound similar to anything we've interviewed for on this podcast. No, probably. <laughs> I don't know what you've interviewed for before. For context, we've interviewed Olivia Hill for iHunt, who has oh, okay, a, very, yes. a very similar subject matter, the horrors of living paycheck to paycheck in a cruel world run by tyrants and monsters. Um, America. and Freya the... and Etten's Hardwired Island were inspirations for some of the poverty mechanics. Ooh, Hardwired Island looks really good. I'm waiting for it to yeah. be done, done before I dig into it. The other game was, um, oh no, I forgot it right in the middle of the interview. Oh, oh well, no. moving on. <laughs> <laughs> moving on from the segue. Uh, so Skulldiggers, um, I was designing it with three different things, with three different premises in mind. The first being that um, you're not invaders, which is a usual problem with the dungeon-delving uh, yep. genre of games, where you go in and you kill a bunch of goblins and take all their stuff, but they were just living there with their stuff, and you stole it. And now you're thieves and conquador, conquistadors. And that's Col colonial bad? Yes, colonialism murder cult simulator is... Is fairly popular, and I don't like it. So one of my <laughs> premises for this game was to make it so the dungeons were invading you. There are horrible things from underground that are coming up to take over the world, and you have to go in and destroy the source, or they will endlessly respawn. That's um, really cool, and after this interview, we should, we should talk about that a little bit, because we've uh, had this idea in very previous games. <laughs> Not as um, well fleshed out. It's... It's a thing I've seen in a couple places before, but I could not tell you where. I yeah. don't remember. It's like, in the back of my mind, I feel like I saw this somewhere. The idea that the dungeon... I'm just gonna do it. <laughs> the idea that the dungeon is a genius loci or like a malevolent, fo a malevolent presence. Like the dungeon itself yeah. is the creature you're trying to get rid of. The only... The closest thing I can think of are the living dungeons from 13th Age, but those aren't quite the same. Mm. Um, that's the dungeon itself is alive. This isn't that. There is a monster directing the dungeon. Um, anyway, slightly off topic. Premise number two 
was that uh, you aren't heroes. You aren't, like, Fellowship. Fellowship is specifically your heroes, and I wanted to write a different game for this. You can already play Heroes in Fellowship. Writing another game about heroes and fantasy fighting monsters felt a little redundant. So I mean, I, I mean, you already maxed it out. Like, right? You I, did it perfect I've done the all first I can time. with Fellowship. I don't want to write more of that. I'm writing something different this time. Um, and the third premise was actually no. I should go on it a little more. Um, the way that you're not heroes is that you're you're like the dregs of society, the folks who don't have jobs, who aren't well-loved, who are doing this because you have no choice. You're the army conscripts in USA. Mm-hmm. Um, so you aren't well-loved, but you're, the service you do is still essential all the same, which has only become more relevant in the last month. I know, um, right? Christ. Unintentionally. But I've been writing this for like a year, um, off and on. I just started getting really hard into it the last two months or so. And it's uh, some things are coming together in a weird way. But that's okay. I mean, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the other games we've had on here that are very much in this same thing. The, the word I think that applies is zeitgeist. Yeah. Because like with Skulldiggers and um, I Hunt and the other two games I was thinking of was Disposable Heroes and Brinkwood. The idea that certain people do jobs everyone makes fun of, but it turns out those jobs are essential for the community's survival and they don't get any respect. And the idea that living in a, a poverty money society is a nightmare. Like it's all coming to a head yeah. because that's why all, that's why all you developers. I'm writing make- for the time I live in. <laughs> oh yeah. All of you developers are making these games because that's literally what's happening to all these people. They're metaphors for the trauma of being alive in the current age. Yeah. Which is rough. But also, like, playing it is kind of cathartic, because so far, in my experience, players have mostly come out on top, which is nice. Yeah. Um, I, I want to say, well, not segue, but while we're talking about kind of um, the, the overview of the game, I remember this very specific conversation I think you might have had on Twitter about the three sort of phases the game goes through. Like, there's a phase for adventure in the dungeon, for prepping for the dungeon and then for like dealing with stuff in the town the dungeon's afflicting and that's actually really interesting to see kind of you know broken into those scales yes that's that was premise number three. Oh shoot um, sorry no that's perfect segue uh, so premise number three is i wanted to capitalize on something that dungeons and dragons fifth edition promised in its playtest and absolutely failed to deliver on yeah they like, walked completely they walked that stuff back real hard yeah, they wanted to. In the playtests, Merle's was promising that, hey, we should have the game so that way characters are equally good at exploring combat and dealing with society. I think it was like diplomacy or something. I don't remember exactly what they said. The, in the third three pillar was. pillars, quote unquote. Yeah, the three pillars was what they called the concept. I still have, and then they did on... nothing with it. <laughs> I still have people on Twitter saying that D and D is so good because of the three pillars they have. I'm like, what? Yeah, the three pillars, where combat is um, 95% of those three pillars. I know, right? It's, it uh, doesn't work. Uh, they put all of their beans into the combat basket. Um. But look, you can, <laughs> you can do a high school romance game in D&D. It's whatever you make it, Gnome. God, that frustrates me. Anyway, um, D&D gripes aside, I could gripe <laughs> about it forever, and I should, I've been meaning to write 
a thing, an essay someday. Screaming, howling into the void, triumphant. <laughs> uh, someday. Someday, someday. Anyway, back to this game. So the three <laughs> pillars were uh, society that I decided on, which the same ones promised there, but I renamed them because I wanted them to be more consistent. Mm-hmm. Um, ex- the expedition, combat, and society are the three phases of the game. Mm-hmm. So... In order to make a character who is equally good at all three, every character has a different playbook for each. Mm. Your warrior roles determine how you play the combat game. Your explorer roles determine how you play the expedition. And your uh, citizen role determines how you play in society. Um, And every character gets one of each, and which one you choose for which doesn't influence the others directly nice. like if i pick to be the the bully in town that doesn't mean i also have to be like something muscly and brawlery in my other roles i could then be like the chef and the trickster over in combat and explore expedition okay i'm just really mean to other people around town because i'm a jerk so when you build your character um do you have like different playbooks you pick for the different roles? Yes, I have eight for each role. Nice. Um, in the base game, and there will be more later. Um, I don't. There won't be more to start with in the base game. But one of the things I also want is a little bit inspired by like XCOM and other similar games. Um, is I wanted a tech tree in this game. So the right? society game is all about improving your village and unlocking new things. And extra rolls are one of those things you can unlock. See, um, that's really cool because that reminds me of like Darkest Dungeon or like, um, oh, shit. it is a little Darkest Dungeon inspired. Yes, um, Kingdom Death, the board game. Yeah, okay. Where like mm-hmm. after you're done doing the run, you go back and you have to start, you know, getting your adventurers and your town streamlined a bit here. You know, unlocking new things for it and new processes for them. Yeah, um, I'm a little bit inspired by various legacy games because I always like that when sometimes later on you unlock things that completely change how you play. Mm -hmm. And I wanted that in. Um, So that's why this is also going to be my first game with two separate core books. One for all the players with all the base stuff that you start the game with and one for the GM with all the unlockables uh, because I don't want the players to see that stuff. (laughs) So you're encouraging for this game for there to be, like, uh, asymmetrical information. Yes. Um, for sure. Uh, there are a bunch of things that I want only the GM to know, like the various types of monsters and their abilities and stuff. I want the players to find that out through play. Um, but also, different factions will join your village as time goes on. And it... I'd like the players to not know what they're dealing with until they figure it out in play. Okay. Um, Has any thought been put into, like, um, I don't want to say replayability, because that's just, it's not that big of a concern with games, but, like, a common thing I ran into in, like, D&D spaces goes kind of like this. Someone's all talking about uh, how they want to run, like, Lost Minds of Falandor or whatever, that that module that everyone gets for D&D. And then someone goes, well, some of my players have played it at like cons or like gaming stores. So I want to run this module, but they already know all the twists and turns into it. So I'm just going to not let them play because they already know everything. Now, people in the DD server go, that makes sense. And then people who like are human beings 
are all like, <laughs> well, wait, wait, you're just going to kick this guy out of the fucking game because he had the misfortune of having fun with the fun game previously in his adult life? How does this idea of the asymmetrical information kind of like, has there been any thought put into like massaging that? Like people coming back, running, playing in Skull Diggers and like, you know, other campaigns or coming in from like online games or in-person games, still experiencing that figure out for the first time when um, they play again? I mean, part of it, that's part of why I want to have a lot of different options available. Okay. So that way, when you go through, you won't necessarily run into all the same things again. Okay, so it's kind of like... And just... if you do, then that's okay, too. <laughs> it's right. fine if you find the, fight the same boss twice. Is there, like, with, with a wide variety of things? I know in Fellowship, for example, you tend to give um, the, the readers and the players a lot of different options for, like horizon the overlord the bosses the threats that could possibly be there so it is actually pretty hard to encounter the same stuff you know in the same sequence is, is that kind of philosophy still going to be there in skull diggers like these these kind of like factions or uh variants um kind of yeah okay like <laughs> i'm still working on some of this stuff of so. course um but basically Okay, so to, to fully understand exactly what you're asking, you're wondering if there will be enough variety to keep people interested if they replay and try things differently. Yeah, um, kind of like how... And I, in... think, I think, yes, that there should be, uh, because I intend to have... Um, the base game's going to launch with four different types of enemies, and I don't even know how many factions I'm going to put in. I'm probably at least ten. Mm -hmm. And you aren't going to run into all of those every single game. Well, that's perfect, each faction of enemies is going to have, like, three different bosses and, like, ten different basic enemies you can run into, which you can run into in different groups and patterns. So, yeah. like, I'm not sure that... I feel like that should have enough variety. No, that makes sense. It's kind of like, again, Fellowship's my reference point for this, where mm -hmm. it's like, you know, you have the Machine Army, the Corruption Army, the the group, the organization, and the, uh, the Horde. And the Titans, yes. And the Titans, um, there they are. That's all of them. And yeah, that's similar thing going on here, but but not quite the same. Um, this isn't a Powered by the Apocalypse game. I'm redesigning from the ground up from like first principles here. I am super glad you said that, because that segues into the first question. Uh, after we're done, this has all been the overview. I'm ready for the first question. What system are you using? What would it be similar to? What uh, what should people be expecting going in? Um, fucking nothing. <laughs> it is not like anything else that I know of on the market that I can tell. Because I am... I designed a hell of a grab bag of a game, and I'm not exactly sure how to describe it beyond you should play it. Um, yeah, I, I've read over so the, the playtest documents you've been providing us, the idea that, um, you know, the combat section has randomization, and the randomization yes. gets less randomization as you move on to the different phases until it's actually static once you get to, I think, society, right? Yes, that's yeah. right. The society game is a static worker placement game where you are vying for resources, and whoever gets to go first gets to get the best benefit out of whatever they do. Mm -hmm. Players who go later either have to do different things if they want full benefit, or if they want to do something that someone else already did, they get less benefit out of doing it. Yeah, like um, um, like in one of those cookie-clicker games, where you can't pop things too consistently, or else you get less and less uh, pay. Uh, 
There are. It's a genre of board game that's fairly popular. Um, mm. I haven't played a ton of them, but they're really fucking good. I love them. Um, what Argent the Consortium is the big one I've played a lot. Okay. Uh, so like, the one of the, one example is one of the basic actions is construction it allows you to start projects. It is the the research of this system. Um, the first player who takes a construction action in a month gets to reduce the cost of something by four coins, and if they have enough money, they can just buy out the project from there, or they can continue to reduce the cost over time. If someone's taken that first slot, no one else can. The second slot only reduces it by two coins. Okay. So, um, there is a sort of a fight over resources there, and one of the actions allows you to change where people are in the pecking order. Oh, no. So who gets to decide when, what goes where and when. So there's a vague amount of co competitiveness in this alongside the uh, teamwork. Yeah. In the one society game playtest I did, the aristocrat uh, really fucked around with everybody by playing politics and sabotaging other people's actions. And they pissed off everyone so much that by the end of the, ga of the society game, when we, when we stopped playing for the day, uh, he was almost at the bottom of the initiative order from the top because everyone was so mad it just started gagging up on this guy being a jerk. Guillotine. It was Guillotine. very good. Um, and then the second phase of game, the expedition, is when you leave town to go find the monsters that are... find the castle that they're coming out of, the bone that has broken the earth. Um... And you want to go. You need to first. You need to do an expedition to find the bone, and then once you do, you need to do an expedition inside of it to destroy the monsters and their at their source to mm -hmm. stop the bleeding. Um, Sounds a uh, like thematically speaking, a little bit like Castlevania. Uh, this is the one that's probably the most different from anything else I'm aware of. Um, it is vaguely similar to hex crawls, but the randomizer is cards instead of a chart because Ooh. hex crawls are all charts and stuff. Um, so when you say cards, um, you, I'm assuming you, you mean like playing cards, right? Yeah. A deck of 52 poker cards with, it, with the jokers. I, yeah, that sounds fun. You could probably mod those over to tarot cards if you want to get super fancy too, right? Uh, no. <laughs> Aw. You need the, you need the playing cards. The playing cards are important. Each suit is a different area. Fair enough. Um, spades are random encounters. That's where the monsters are. Uh, clubs are dead ends. You can't progress from them. You have to turn back. Oof. Uh, hearts are safe zones. They're just, there's nothing there. You have a safe spot. And then diamonds are barriers. You have to deal with an obstacle in order to continue past them. Nice. These can be things like locked doors or buried rubble, stuff that you'd need stuff to get through. It sort of sets up like a little set piece to kind of work around for that section. Yeah. Cool. So each player also has a hand of cards in this one, in exploration, mm -hmm. um, that they use to influence the cards as they flip. So when you go into, when you travel, I should actually start from the base, how this game works, because it's, it's different than anything else I've ever played. Um, I made Sure, up a new absolutely. Thing. So there is a joker that starts face up in play, and that is, that is your town. That is where you started from, where you go back to go home and resupply if you need to. You can travel north, east, south, or west. 
And when you travel to an area that doesn't have a card, you draw a card from the deck and play it to see what you find there. That is the basic idea of the game. Um, but instead of flipping randomly, um, well, you are flipping randomly, but then you can modify it with the cards in your hand. So, for example, if you flip up a spade area, but you don't want to do a fight, you could um, retreat. There is one of the actions. You discard a card to run back to leave the area um, so you don't get in that fight. There is Try Again, where you can discard two cards to flip a new card from the top of the deck and see what you get instead. And then there is um, to replace it entirely, where you play a card from your hand that is bigger than the card you're uh, exploring onto, and you go to that card instead. Okay. Um, so... And and the exploration phase, of course, once you actually find, you know, the, the threats you're seeking out leads to the combat phase, right? Yes. When you get into an encounter... Where the dice um, hit the you, table. The, then, then the dice come out. The randomizer. Uh, the combat game is based on CeeLo, which is a gambling game. I actually don't know uh, about CeeLo, so... CeeLo is fairly unpopular outside of Japan and China, honestly. Okay. Um, I only know it because of the Yakuza games, and I was like, "Oh, this is a really interesting randomizer. I should probably." The Yakuza see games how I are make this work. great for that. They're little mini game packages. So um, so Celo is a three dice gambling game, where the core premise is you're trying to score a point. Whoever has the highest point, well, whoever has the highest point wins. Normally, um. CeeLo has a dealer who rolls, and then everyone tries to beat them is how it normally works. I threw that out the window. Um, did something different with it. But the interesting thing is um, your point is based on the odd die out. So if you roll a 2, a 2, and a 4, you got a 4 point. Your goal is to roll doubles, and your point is the leftover number. Huh. Um... That is the basic roll. You can also get straights. So if you roll a 1, 2, 3, that's a straight. That is also a number. Um, for that one, your point is equal to your highest number plus 2. So the 1, 2, 3, you get a 5. Hmm. 4, 5, 6, you get an 8. Okay. Um, and then the absolute best result is to roll a triple. If you roll a triple, like a 2, 2, 2, you get equal to your point plus 6. So but 222 would also be an 8, equal to the highest straight possible. Um, in combat, everyone is basically in a big old clusterfuck where they're trying to beat each other up, and whoever rolls highest is the one who gets damage dealt. Um, everyone has a target. You're trying to beat up your target. If you fail, if you roll lower than your target, your target hits you. So counterattacks are actually more likely to cause damage than you are to actually hit your target, because you don't have to win to deal counterattack damage. Sounds like a, a fray. Yeah, it is meant to be very chaotic and messy and dangerous. Um, Swingy, yeah. Don't get yeah. into a fight with monsters. They might stab you. Or eat you. Um, stabbing is honestly something very few of them do because I'm trying to make these monsters very spooky. Yeah. They do things like eat your memories instead. Oh, it's going to be like that, is it? Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. Um, or they hug you and then explode. I have an enemy that does that, too. 
<laughs> because that was one of my favorite moments in Dark Souls is finding those things and being like, oh, fuck you. Um, well, Dark Souls 2 specifically had the exploding mummies that made my life hell for a little bit. You know, it's funny. I've played Dark Souls 2. I don't remember those guys. Um, they're at the bottom of the rat well. They've been excised the from my tower. mind. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, 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 I remember. Yeah, you hit the bottom of the well, and those little guys start showing up from the water, right? Yes, and then they just... They're, like, lying down, so you can't even see them until oh, they get up, God, and then yeah. they just dive at you and explode. Yeah, yeah, it's... You're unzipping me. It's coming back now. There was a reason I'd <laughs> forgotten about them. Right, because it's very traumatic. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to invoke that feeling in players, too. Um... So far in my playtest, actually, the regular enemies are coming along pretty good, but the bosses are kind of weak, and I need to buff them a bit. Um, well, that's interesting. It's cool how you can kind of figure that out just while you're iterating. Yeah, it's something to work on. Um, something for next version. Uh, but yeah, those explosion guys, for example, did a number on the crew, and then they went and they basically killed the boss in two turns. And I was like, well, that's not right. Um, <laughs> I'll work on it. We'll come back to that one. We'll come back. We'll figure it out. All right. Well, that's a pretty good overview of the three phases of the system and kind of what you're going to be working with, you know, mm -hmm. in there. So let's let's go back a bit to we were talking about bones coming out of the ground and monsters that eat your memories. And yeah, I should probably uh, an explain explosion, the premise of the system. <laughs> and explosion creatures. And you were talking about how nobody likes the players and hates them. So okay. let's talk about the themes of the game, what the world looks like, and the, and the, the, the kind of thrust that brings the player characters into the scene. So the world building is centered entirely on your small village. If there's stuff beyond your village, it's irrelevant. Um, like the uh, important thing, like the town from Diablo. Yeah, something yeah, goes town bad. Diablo, something or goes Darkest bad dungeon, in... for instance, where the only thing that matters is the keep at the edge of the dungeon. Yeah, something goes bad in Tristram one day, and you just keep going to the, into further and further into basements until it becomes a nightmare. Yes. Gotcha. Like, yeah, you could like the other, there's other places. The people coming the people supporting your your village come from somewhere. Mm -hmm. But they don't matter. You're not going to those places. You're stuck here and must protect it. Um, this world I have a few different working theories, whichever one you want to embrace as the Marrow Master is up to you. Mm -hmm. Um the exact canon one depends on your game. But one of the examples is that this village is on a planet of a dying god. The, the entire planet is a god's corpse. So the monsters are little pieces of it coming back to life. Oh, no. Is one of the theories. The bones that break out of the earth are exactly that. The bones of dead gods. Another theory is that there is some society below the earth that doesn't wish to stay down there and is attempting invasions one at a time. Just little forays, and maybe something greater is coming someday. Mole people. This is all... This is all a prelude, like, Pacific Rim situation. Mm-hmm. Eventually there will be a triple event. Yeah, exactly. Or the mole people are littering. They went on their own adventure to get rid of a dungeon, and when they finished destroying and killing it, they threw it in the garbage, which is the surface world. Something like that. Um, mole people are honestly too mundane for the things that are in there. I'm going full-on eldritch horror monsters with these. That's really metal. Um, the 
currently most fleshed out of the four factions that are going to be in the base game are called the Facade. They are imitations of human society. They look like us, vaguely, if you don't look too carefully. If you don't, if you ignore the monstrous parts, and if you don't mind the smell. Um, they're humanoid, they're pale, they're often faceless, they have unusual body structures that are vaguely humanoid, but not quite. Um, they wear clothes, they craft weapons, they have their own villages, their bone is actually like a castle or a government building, mm. and then they sprout up a village around it that you have to disable before they establish themselves thoroughly. Oh, God. Um, so there's a, there is an aspect of a ticking clock, too. If you don't deal with this fast enough, it gets much more irritating, I'm, getting, I'm guessing. Yes. If you deal with the bones immediately, they're relatively simple. Um, but the longer you hold off while a bone is there, like if you decide to play some society game turns before going to the bone, uh, that would be very bad very quickly. They get worse rapidly. So here's my um, question. They start sieging the village. Here's my question about that, um, just as a, a first blush thought. Is there any sort of incentive in the game for delaying going to the bone? Like, if it matures more, does the, I don't know, rewards or values inside ripen? Not currently, um, except for the fact that killing more monsters means you get more stuff. Hmm. Because monsters have stuff. Oh, boy. Um, but not directly. That might be something I might consider. Um, generally, the reason you'd want to do it is if you wanted to, like, heal up or finish some a project before you go out. Okay. Because um, you don't recover naturally. You have to spend time in town healing. So if a second bone pops up while your party is still half dead, uh, you might be in trouble. That's, uh... So it sounds like ticking clocks are a big deal in this. A little bit. Um, I don't have, like, Forged in the Dark clocks specifically. No, but, but... thematically. There's, there's <laughs> thematically, a... yes. Time is a pressure. There, there is a threat, an existential threat, and it's ticking down on you every day you're not uh, swinging a sword. Yes. Um... You've gone to total war with the Earth. Or whatever is coming out of it. Mm -hmm. It's something, it's terrible, it's trying to kill all of you. And you're the unfortunate saps who are expendable enough that you're being sent in to deal with it. You've talked about that, uh, how the player characters are not like, they're not enshrined culturally as some sort of necessary thing. They just do it. Like, you're, you're people who don't have better options, so you kill things. Yes. Um, you get paid for it. There is someone who is hiring you specifically for this, the aristocrat around town. Basically the guy who owns the village. Um, and they're hiring someone so they don't have to do it. And you're basically picked because you're strong and a bunch of... And expendable. Yeah. So that's exactly how Fallout 1 starts, actually. You get chosen by the aristocrat to go out and save the town because you're big, dumb, and expendable. Yeah. I mean, depending on how you pick your stats and follow up, but yeah. I mean, that's what he thinks of you. It's clear the Overseer <laughs> does not respect you until you show up and blow him in half at the end. That's um, the canonical ending of every Fallout 1 playthrough. <laughs> um, so, the different types of things cause different types of problems, and they also aren't friendly with each other. Really? Um, so the, the different threats actually, like like, 
uh, what's that called? Uh, EVE, enemy versus enemy themselves? Yes. Cool. Um, in, a, in a standard situation, you'll never run into that. But tabletop games aren't about standard situations. <laughs> They're about how things get weirder and go wrong along the way. Yeah, well, that, that sets up a lot of really interesting kind of scenarios if you have a village that's already under siege. If you can somehow make up a scenario where the, the aristocrat's like, look, there's another bone that has sprouted up. You're not supposed to wipe it out. All you gotta do is clear-cut a path between the two so the monsters walk into each other on the way to the village, and that'll buy us time. Something like that. Something um, like that. I don't really know the specifics. I'm just throwing ideas that came to my head out there. That sounds right. engaging. That would be a fun thing to do. Yeah, that one concept that the that the monsters aren't all, you know, patting each other on the back is, uh, it creates a lot more variety. Yeah. So, like, the four factions, um, I mentioned the facade. There's also the ivory, the rust, and the, um, what was the fourth one that I have in the base game? I have them written here somewhere. One second. My brain is leaving me. Goodbye, brain. I know, right? Um, the shadow is the last one in the base game. Um, yes, thank you. Um, there is a, as Peter just posted in the chat, there is a list. I had a list of things um, in a previous draft, but two of them I'm removing for scope purposes to keep the game more reasonable for the core, and I might put them back in later, stretch goals and stuff. I mean, that makes perfect sense. That's what people come to your games for. A nice, solid, you know, structured mm -hmm. base game, and then the expansions bring in more and more options that yeah. totally change it. So, like, the two... Um, one of them I'm going to put as a stretch goal right from the start. It's going to be the first one. is for the loam things, which are plant monsters. Oh, thank God. Um, There's not enough plant another one. dungeons out there, actually. And then another one would be brine things for your standard below the sea Cthulhu monsters, because who doesn't love creepy crustaceans with yeah. Spiders um, and power armor that breathe underwater. Yes. Uh, the other three in the book, though, the rust things are organic metal, very Evangelion monsters, or very uh -huh. Evangelion inspired. Um, like biomechanical? robots with bionic, biomechanical bio parts, yeah. Very like geekery. A little bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is um, funny because you say the monsters fight each other, and in the comics, Xenomorph Fives, they actually do the same thing. They're like ants. Um, well, the idea here would be if two different rust bones were to break at the same time, they'd work together. Mm hmm. Because they're from the they're same, just, you know, hive. They're from the same hive, yeah. Yeah. Um, the shadow things are not, they don't follow our laws of physics, they're unreal, illusory, strange. Um, that's where the monster that I mentioned eating memories comes from. Um, they're like not quite all the way here. So what we perceive is their shadow pressing up against our world or something. Their bones are very Escher-esque. Okay. Uh, or Dolly-esque. And then the last one was the ivory, which are the bone bones. They're the skeletons. Oh, thank God. Normalcy. Yeah. They're honestly the most normal of the bunch because all they do is hunt in packs. Yeah. Just get a bunch They're of. They're just wild animals, mostly. A bunch of smiley boys with uh, metal hats on. Uh, just some skeleton dogs, some floating skull storms that constantly scream at you. You know, the usual. Not enough games have floating skulls, to be honest. 
It's true. They're I, important. They make Castlevania what it is. I feel like they were the staple of everyone's childhood, and they don't show up nearly enough in RPGs. Um, so, these four types of enemies will fight each other if they meet each other, which the most likely way that it happens is you can actually recruit some of them into your village. What, seriously? Like in Persona yes. and Dragon Warrior? Yes. Oh my god, that's super cool. There are three types of each thing. There are the beasts, which are mindless and cannot be converted. They're just, they're mostly animals, but not always. Um, yeah, the shock trooper type. Yeah. They can be tamed, but keeping them around is just asking for trouble. Um, they can be tamed in the way people now try to tame bears. Yes, I was going to, yeah, bears would be a good example. Or like a tiger. Like they're, you they're... can kind of make it do things, but like if you stop paying attention for a bit, it could just as easily eat your face. You could never tame a tiger because tigers act exactly like a house cat would. So if you ever <laughs> see a tiger like play with someone and then eat them, that's what a cat would do. It's just not I big mean, enough. Yeah, cats actually really do do that. People complain about petting a cat until it bites them all the time. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> if a cat could, it would definitely eat you. It's just too small. Right, They're and also great. it's it enjoys the beneficial relationship of scritches and free food. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's cool with the shock troopers that they can sort of be you can sort of do stuff with them if you happen to have the yes. opportunity arise. One of the different factions around town, their goal is to try to tame beasts, um, with the intent of then sicking them on a different type of thing that shows up. Yeah, that's like a whole character uh, archetype right there. That's amazing. That's something that yeah, someone that's, in our game. One of the play. factions wants to do that. That's their goal. That's one of the people you can find around town. Um, it can go wrong. Like if they re if they catch a thing and bring it back and it gets out, that that's suddenly a big problem. Um, you might have some casualties around the city. Anyway, that brings us to uh, the third type. I'm skipping the second type for now. The third type are the lords. They control the bones. There is only one of those per dungeon. They control the dungeon, they protect the marrow. If you kill them, you can destroy the heart that makes more monsters. Right. Um, you cannot recruit the lords. The bone is everything to them. <laughs> yeah. This whole invasion plan is their idea, it's their goal. They'll never work with you. Yeah, this is Even their... the intelligent ones. This is their first bad place. They don't want to screw it up. Yeah. Like... Destroying you is their job. That's what they're here for. They're I mean, not convertible. Which brings us to the actual ones that you can recruit, which I'm going to have to which I'm going to write for every single one of these types. They're called callers. Their job is around town or around in the in the dungeons, their job is to direct the beasts, basically. They're the ones who would lead sieges on your town if you left a bone bee. Oh, they're they're um, the management, basically. Yes. They're intelligent. They have their own goals, separate from those of their lord, although most of them will serve the lord without question, because the lord is scary. Yeah, yeah. Very powerful. Um, and for every one of these callers, I'm going to have both their combat stats and their stats for, if you recruit them, here's what they do around town. That's super cool. It also Here's the tech that they give you access to. Here's the things that they want to do. Oh my god, that sounds really... That, that sounds like, you know, those kind of really complicated uh, video games, like, like Rifts or RimWorld or whatever, 
where if you play it away, no one else does. You unlock weird, unique things. That's what that sounds. Yes, like. that and is that's super cool. That is my ideal. I want to have weird tech trees that vary based on what you recruit. Yeah. If you bring a forge walker, they which are like pyramid head on fire. They're blacksmiths for the facade. Um, if you bring one of those home, suddenly you have a hyper competent blacksmith. Uh, who can make things that no human ever could. What does that get you? Right. He's just walking into town being like, you guys still use iron? (laughs) Um, Or if you go recruit from the facade, also the puppeteer, a person who mind controls other people. What does that do to your city? (laughs) What problems is that going to cause? Is that going to solve the aristocrat? Can you mind control him with the puppeteer and make him no longer a problem? What is that going to do? What if they mind control you? (laughs) What if they've always mind controlled you? Uh, So, the callers, I'm going to have fun writing their factions. That isn't in the current playtest yet, but it's something that's high priority for me to write once I get everything more... I mean, you've given once every... I get the core systems in place better. You've essentially given everyone absolute permission and right to make the callers and the emperor like Queen Beryl's court. Yeah, like, like that's that's all that's going to turn into <laughs> within five yes. seconds of the PDF going live. It's just going to be Sailor Moon, and it's going to be amazing. Um, and that also is where some of those unlockable roles are going to come from. Like if you recruit a puppeteer. Someone could now play the puppeteer role. Someone in combat who mind controls enemies and makes them attack themselves. Oh, that's cool. So you were talking about enjoying legacy style games. Is that aspect going to exist in Skulldiggers? Like if we lose our adventurers, will the things for that town that are unlocked be persistent for the next group of people? Is that intentional? Um, well, the idea is if people die, new people show up. I, I know. Like so. that's, that's sort of the standard for every game forever. Obviously, you know, I, I'm being a bit obvious with that one, right? But well, I no, mean, I mean, like... to, go, to go more into that, I mean, you can have multiple characters. You don't oh. have to play just one guy. Oh, that's super you could, fun. Each player can actually have three characters. And part of the reason I put that rule in is so that way, if you recruit the puppeteer and someone wants to play them in the dungeon, you don't have to kill your old character first. You can just have a second character. Your main character goes on retirement for a bit. So that's, goes on vacation. That's something I've really been wanting from a lot of these games we've been playing recently. The the kind of built-in premise that you have a small group with you. It's not just, you know, four people. It's like 12. But yeah. who is pursuing their own agendas and their own passions changes from arc to arc? Yeah. That's um, amazing. Part of the reason I wanted this, again, was uh, so as you unlock more things, you can just try them out. Yeah. Or if you don't like them, you can retire a character entirely and just say, they don't have to die. You can just send them out and make it someone else. Yeah, he's taken a break this 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 invasion. Yeah. You don't have to kill your um, character to respec. One of the three ways to lose your characters, because there's one for each of the three games. Um, you can get lost in the expedition. You can die in combat. Or in society... Uh, you can be so poor that you are forced into retirement. You have to take up a day job to get by, and you can no longer be an adventurer. I thought it was going to um, be you go to jail, debtor's prison. No, no, the sheriff can take you to jail, but that only makes you lose your next turn. Okay, I thought it was going to get super dark, debtor's prison. <laughs> the ultimate villain of the society of society. I don't think the society, like, if it had a debtor's prison. 
The consequence of that would be, okay, everyone in the debtor's prison is going into the bones. <laughs> Sir, all the debtors you threw into the bones came back as fodder. Um, um, yeah. All right. Well, that's pretty interesting. Like, like all that kind of comes together into like a, a really kind of visceral play loop. You know, you can kind of see all the different parts working. Mm-hmm. Uh, you talked about the aristocrat earlier and how they can be, they're the person who's paying you. But as far as I remember from the play test, it's only once. And they're also an obstacle of sorts while also being your employer. Can you tell us more yes. about the aristocrat? Um, the aristocrat is a son of a bitch. Um, they are the richest person in town. They own you. Quite literally. Um, and you... Defying them has societal consequences. They can they can actually ruin you. Um, their job is to basically be the, the nemesis of society that makes it difficult for you um, in that part of play, play as well. But at the same time, you can't really get rid of them because otherwise you have no income for clearing out bones. Um... They pay you for a job well done, which, as you said, um, right now in the game, the price is just six coins each. I'm probably going to increase that, actually, because in practice, that is kind of low after some of the haul from the treasure you get. Um, yeah. You, if I it, need the aristocrat to be valuable enough that killing them has consequences. <laughs> yeah, because it sounds like after you finish like clearing out the countryside and making everything peaceful and nice again, the first thing you do when you get back into town is kill that rich guy. The uh, final boss. Not much of a boss, honestly. He doesn't have combat stats. If you try to kill him, you'll probably succeed. I'm just imagining... You'll also the... probably go to jail forever. Um, screaming the whole time about how we're all unchained now. The, the two factions that are always in your village at the start of the game are the aristocrat and the sheriff, and I might make a third to join because they don't do a ton at so the beginning. So they count as their own faction, like they have their own kind yes, of... Yes, they get their own turn during society game, and they... At the beginning, they're at the top of the pecking order, so they do stuff before you. Um, they take up actions you might want to take. And the book is written in such a way as to kind of direct the the kind of referee in how to run their AI, essentially. Like yes. what, what their priorities are, what kind of they're looking to do, what their interests are. Yes. So the aristocrat's priority is generally to do whatever thing they think the adventurers want to do most. <laughs> what, to get it first? Yes. What a dick. They have... The aristocrat has infinite money and infinite favor, so nothing they do actually matters in society to them. <sighs> Oh, so, such a dick for example, um, right after one of the dungeons, a bunch of my uh, after one of my playtests, uh, all the players had a bunch of courage damage. Their their courage was marked up really bad. So the aristocrat went to therapy first because he wanted uh, because someone said something mean to him, <laughs> and he was sad. Am I a good ruler? Of course I am. The people but he tolerate took up that therapy slot so no one else could have it. The people tolerate you, your majesty. Um, or another thing he did is he immediately took the politics action to lower the priest three slots in the pecking order because they were too popular. Ow. Um, so they went all the way to the bottom of the turn order for society. So can players use those actions to throw NPC factions down the uh, ladder? Yes. 
Cool. Politics lets you pick anyone, and you either raise or lower them by three for the full benefit slot, or by one for the reduced benefit slot. Okay. Um, However, the aristocrat actually has a protection against this. Oh, I was just about to ask. Because of course they do. (laughs) All right, there Um, it is. Whenever you try to lower their slot, the whenever anything lowers their slot in the pecking order, they are lowered one less. Oh, okay. Well, that's not bad. No, it's not too bad, but it does make it very annoying to try to push them down. It's better to actually lift someone over them. Yeah, that that starts to become clear with the strategies. Yeah. Um, the aristocrat also really likes playing politics. They'll do it a lot. It's their favorite action. Oh, no. Um, the sheriff is also not intentionally rude to the skull diggers, but if they have nothing better to do, they'll usually take the work action, which gets you money to help you survive. Uh, which players need also. <laughs> right. They're just helping her out on town and being a good sheriff. You can't begrudge them for it, but the fact that they start at the top of the pecking order and will take probably the most valuable action for not dying almost every month is bad. Um, All right. And as more faction... they also don't need the money. They're actually on the aristocrats' payroll. Ah. Um, they don't have a lot of money each month. They can only spend two coins, but... Um, you know, they also will never run out of money either. Yeah, they're, they're in no existential crisis. Yeah, not like the players sometimes are. So that brings up another question. As more factions get introduced to the town, um, they all get their own turns. Do they start eating up actions? Is there like a downside yes. to getting factions inside town? I mean, the downside is that the more folks are on the pecking order, the less there is to go around. Yeah. But that's part of where the projects come in. Um, Doing construction can unlock new society actions around town. So you can just add new things to do to your city. All right. Which, you know, will help combat the fact that there are more people competing for those actions. Can you tell us a bit about the other potential factions you can get, other than the aristocrat and the sheriff? Um... I have two currently written and a couple planned for other things. Um, and I especially need to write some of those other ones before the playtest draft goes out to Kickstarter backers because the two that are currently in are both bad. <laughs> and I would like to have a couple ones that are good so that way people don't assume everyone coming to town is bad. You've, you've only written evil so far, eh? I have only written terrible things. And I need to write, like... If a blacksmith comes to your town, that's good. If a doctor shows up, that's good. I need to write a doctor, like a blacksmith, a merchant, a couple other things. Maybe like a black market dealer should, could show up. That'd be fun. Oh, yeah. Um, bunch of stuff like that. I think the new XCOM has that. You have your standard store, and then you have the gray market. Yeah, where you can sell alien junk for cash. Sweet, um, sweet cash. Because right now, the only way to get money around town is everything you sell goes to the aristocrat. They're the ones who buy all your stuff. If the aristocrat isn't in town, you have no way to get money from the treasure you get from looting. Oh, um, really? Yes. That. So, like, a merchant showing up to also buy your stuff would probably be a good extra faction to write. Um, yeah. So that that's on my short list of priorities. Some okay. other things. Um, they'll have different maybe different prices different consequences for working with them versus other people i don't know i'll figure it out well in the meantime the two that are currently written are the sin speakers 
who I mentioned briefly when we were talking about recruiting things, because that's what they want to do. They're the people who want to convince callers to join you and try to tame different beasts. So that way, like, if you have this giant machine monster and a facade bone shows up, they want to be able to go like, okay, go, and just unleash it in their general direction and hope for the best. Um, I actually am planning to have... uh, the sin speakers if you if you ally with them if you don't just destroy them or whatever um a combat role where you have a beast as a pet that you command that's awesome that's exactly what a lot of people are going to immediately go for that's that's one of the the yeah cooler Um, aspects of these types of games the sin speakers however are trying to do all their stuff in secret they're actually their core ability um like the aristocrat can't be lowered and the pecking order stuff abilities um is that they pretend to be a different faction what? You only find out that they're a sin speaker after they start bringing monsters into town. So, like, if you had, like, the therapist faction, it could be, spoiler alert, they're Silent Hill cultists? Yeah. You oh, could no. turn out your doctor's a cultist. Oh, no. Um, or, your, or your merchant, or your blacksmith, or whoever. Um, the other faction I have right now is the Cult of the End, who are rooting for the things to wipe out society. <laughs> You're you're killing me here. Why are they allowed in town? Um, well, because they're also trying to be secret. Ah, there it is. They're 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 a cult. They're not overt about it, but yeah, their their belief is that humanity's time is at an end. We had so a they're good run. Going to try to make things worse. Um, like they can, like we were talking about how if you uh, don't deal with a bone quickly, it gets worse very rapidly. One of the things they can do is delay the people noticing a bone for one turn oh no so uh they're they're trying to make things worse you want them gone as soon as you can find them um there is is not currently a way to remove factions from the game but i'm definitely gonna add like an execution platform project that was that was the next question how how do you stop this um yeah there isn't one written yet but it wouldn't take me very long to write it but yeah there's gonna be you can get the tech to execute folks um i think it'll start as a project only the sheriff can initially do but if you befriend the sheriff they can let you work on it okay Um, the sheriff isn't in any hurry to build the execution platform though unless say a cult of the end is revealed to them then okay. they might spend the next couple months building that. <laughs> All right. So, um, speaking of the different factions you can come into town that like aid the players, you know, you're talking about recovering damage stats and resources and kind of being prepped for the next exploration and siege. Um, how deadly is the game? You know, how 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 battered are players expected to be from like scene to scene? Currently. Not deadly enough, actually. <laughs> players are actually very powerful right now, and I want to make monsters more dangerous. Um, in the current draft, players have mostly been doing fine. Um, like I said, the fight with the explodey guys uh, was the most dangerous so far, and that was a regular encounter. People took a bit of damage. Um, it was about the expected amount I'd want two or three fights to be kind of dangerous 
going for like six would be really bad. Um, and I want the boss fights to be more dangerous. Right now they aren't. That's something I need to work on. So the how... plan is I would like them to be very scary. From like a structure point of view, like people playing this game, how many sessions do you expect it to take to like siege and completely wipe out like a bone, like harvest its marrow and bring it to the aristocrat? Oh, uh, one session pretty much. Okay. Um, the expedition game, the quickest one I've had where they found the exit like right away took like 15 minutes. Um, but on average, they're taking like 45 minutes to an hour. And that's just for one bone. You wiped it out. That's for that's it. for one expedition, and you do two expeditions per bone. One first to find the the bone itself, the the, the entrance to the dungeon, and then a second to explore the dungeon. Okay. And the dungeon is more dangerous than the wilds around it. Yeah, that tracks. So, with uh, lost my train of thought for a second there. Um, we're, we're going for session length, like the expected beats yeah. and time it takes. To so I'd say probably game. like two hours per session would cover and both your expeditions, all the fights you get into. Um, and then maybe another hour to do society game to before some society game time before the next one shows up. Yeah, a chance to kind of see the consequences of the adventure. Yeah, because you got to you got to do your research, get your tech in. Um recover your damage spend your money live your life that kind of thing mm -hmm. um, there are a couple different ways to determine exactly when a new bone shows up um, in the book there is a pure random way where you just roll the dice every turn or at, after each society action and if they're, if you roll high enough a bone shows up or you could do it with cards, where you take ace through king of one suit, and after each society action, flip a card. If it's the ace, a bone showed up. Otherwise, keep going. Right. Um, which means, at most, you'd have a year between bones. Okay. Um, with the with the dice, the number I picked, I don't remember exactly, but it's like a, a roughly 20% chance per roll. So I mean, after like five months, you can expect to have one hit, but it could also hit immediately or it could take forever. Right. You might go like a year and a half or two years even of calm society, which would suck because then you have no income. <laughs> yeah. So if there, if a lot of time goes by between, you know, eruptions, so to speak, um, can players, like, is there an advantage or a great disadvantage to that? Like, can players leverage the society and exploration game for something to kind of get a, take advantage of that drought? Um, currently, there isn't anything... I hadn't considered the expedition game as something to do outside of Bones, which I probably should have. I could probably, like, maybe an expedition to the next town over for stuff would be a cool thing to do. I should write some stuff for that. But... Um, that'll be for later. Uh, in society, one of the actions, working, lets you get money. You can do that to try and stay afloat. Um, players can lend each other money to spot each other if they need it. Um, the way the, the spending works is every, every month, players must spend one coin to maintain their current lifestyle, two coins to go up a lifestyle where better lifestyles have better... You recover better and you 
at the top of it in luxury, you can actually take two society actions per turn. Um, or if you spend nothing, you go down a slot. Oh God. So, and if you go all the way to the bottom, the lowest tier is retirement, where your character can no longer afford this and has to quit being a skull digger. They leave the play. They're no longer a faction around town. They're just gone. They're an NPC now. Make a new character. Okay. Um, so there's also a few other ways to make money among the various society roles. For example, I haven't talked about any of the roles yet, but they're all pretty powerful and change the way the game works. Would you like to kind of get into the roles now, just as an opportunity yeah. to talk about the different Since we're talking about society and how to survive... Um, one of my favorites is the bully. They guard an action at the start of each society turn. Like, I don't want anyone playing politics. I'm going to put my, my little bully mini over the politics action. If anyone takes it, they have to spend me two coins, or they have to give me two, two of their coins, or else the action fails. Nice. Can you do that to the uh, aristocrat? You can do that to the aristocrat. He has infinite money, though, so he'll always pay you. Yeah. Um... But you only get the money if someone bothers taking that action. So, uh, you can prevent people from doing things you don't want them to. And you get money if they do it anyway. Yeah. Um, honestly, the bully's main job at the beginning of the game is pretty much, okay, what do I think the aristocrat will do to fuck with us? Probably politics or sabotage. I should guard one of those. Yeah, let's, let's profit off of that a little. Yeah. They stop guarding things once they take their turn, so the bully actually wants to be as low on the pecking order as possible. Um, being popular makes them worse at their job. <laughs> um, the next role on the list is the carpenter. They, it doesn't cost them anything to do construction. Um, and they always get full benefit even when taking slots other than the full benefit slot. So they're extremely good at getting new buildings put in place. In expanding your village. Um... They have, like, improvements that make it so that way they can actually... Their construction also decreases costs of projects even more. They can get more done faster. They gain favor from completing projects. So, they're all about the tech tree. That's super, like... We have players in our group that would, like, just bite right into that. They love that kind of gameplay. The, the sort of tech tree managing the, the construction mm -hmm. projects. Making things more efficient, like... I know a lot of people don't really enjoy that because it sounds like it's like the, the numbers game, but like it's so <laughs> it's, it's satisfying. It's so satisfying. It is so satisfying. I'm writing it because I want that. I yeah. want that. So the carpenter is there to be. I'm gonna. I'm not gonna play all this politics nonsense. I'm not do this subterfuge. I'm an honest worker getting work done. That's the, your society role. Um, there's the diplomat who's extremely good at negotiation, which we haven't even brought up yet. Um, but negotiation is how you how you get other factions to do things you want them to. Um, like, you can talk to them and strike deals. Like, hey, that aristocrat's really fucking with us, so I'm going to negotiate with the sheriff to see if we can figure out a way to deal with them. Kind of thing. Like, if you want that execution platform built, you could go negotiate with the sheriff, for instance. Okay. Or, if you figure out someone's a sin speaker... Uh, maybe you want them to build more animal cages so you could bring back some beasts next time you're out in a dungeon. Uh. Um, so you go negotiate with them to get them to do some stuff for you. The diplomat is extremely good at negotiation and generally gets what they want easier than other folks. Okay. Um, 
And then there's the noble, who is aristocrat too. <laughs> Except as a player this time. Oh no, he's the baby overlord playbook. Uh, so their benefit is the aristocrat likes them. As long as they don't piss off the aristocrat, they gain one favor for free each month. Oh, nice. And also, whenever they play politics, they also gain one favor. Oh. So they they just get a bunch of extra favor, which you can use to... Um, like I was telling you about reduced benefit slots and no benefit slots, you can spend favor to get full benefit anyway. Oh. Um, which is difficult for most roles to achieve. The main way to get favor only gives you one favor per month. So playbooks... And it costs two favor in order to make a reduced benefit slot into a full benefit. Oh. So, so that sounds it, like uh, a that sounds like a resource that's valuable. It is very valuable, yes. And the have, noble basically gets it coming out of their ears for free. They're farming favors from the aristocrat. Yeah. Um, but if the aristocrat goes away, their role suddenly becomes a lot weaker. But that's okay because you probably have bought a couple improvements by the time you murder the aristocrat. The inevitable countdown. Yeah. Um, there's the nurse who is really good at healing other players. They can take the healing, the therapy or hospitalized society actions um, to do extra bonuses. They gain favor whenever they do it, and they can remove additional scars from players. Mm. Um, scars being, when you take damage, sometimes it has consequences, because without consequences, this would be much more boring. Um, scars are basically the way that I have all the three games interact with each other. If you break an arm in the dungeon that has consequences. Yeah, it's going to be hard to take the work action society, right? Um, it doesn't currently. I should make it do that. That's a good <laughs> idea. <laughs> what it does currently is it makes you heavy. Um, heavy is a drawback tag. You can only have one heavy item, period. Uh, oh. If you are heavy, that is your one heavy item. Oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, you can't carry anything when you have a, or you can't carry much when you have a broken arm. You can still carry the small things like your coin purse and all that. But you can't bring the the, the big item. You can't you can't carry your Buster Sword anymore. Um, there's the priest who I mentioned briefly before. They have a they can get a second society action by commanding their followers to do stuff. Oh. Um, it costs them one favor to command their flock but that gives them a second turn at the cost of one favor. Are favors and, interchangeable with players? Like, can they trade favors with each other? They do not. It's just a token you have. It's oh. just a measure of how much people around town are willing to do things for you because they like you. Ah, there's no favor trading. Okay. No. Um, the priest gets extra favor from doing philanthropy because that's what priests do. They help out around town and make themselves popular so that way they can command people better. Okay. Um, there's the troublemaker who gets the unique token mischief. Uh, they can spend mischief in order to make other people's actions worse. What, like downgrade them? Yes, downgrade them from a full slot to a reduced slot, or if they're already in a reduced slot, to a no benefit slot. Oh. Um, so, and that's the, their job is to mess with other factions basically yeah like like not just pc but npc factions they're supposed yes. to kind of bust them up right like the aristocrat maybe they're making them less good at sabotaging somebody um and the last of the society rules is the vagabond uh they do crimes 
there is a crime basic society action that um, anyone can do, but has severe costs associated with it. The Vagabond does it without those costs. Uh... They do it for free. They're good at crime. Um, <laughs> one of their upgrades I really love is uh, community service. You can perform philanthropy when you have jail time. <laughs> So they can do actions even suffering the consequences of other actions. Yeah. Uh, doing crime is one of the ways for the sheriff to throw you in jail. They can only throw you in jail if you break the law by doing crime or sabotage. And the, and the sheriff both hears about it and doesn't like you. Those That's are amazing. all things that have to happen for him to throw you in jail. The Vagabond is very good at pissing off the sheriff and being thrown in jail. <laughs> so uh, are there rules in the exploration and combat portion? There are eight of each, yes. Um, so to go to the expedition, we have at the top of the list, da, 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 the boss, who has minions. They just get three extra employees. Oh, nice. Who uh, can help them explore faster because they can go in different directions and travel with different people. Um, in expedition, each player has a hand of cards. All of your minions have a hand of two cards also. Um, and they're better at retreating or trying again. Um, or they have different benefits, each one. Um, so as the boss, your job is to basically have a bunch of minions to carry all that heavy stuff that the, the other guy can't carry anymore because he broke his arm. Um, they're very good at holding lots of stuff. Then there's the chef, who makes resting better. Uh, when you rest, you normally have to mark food. If you have a chef with you, only the chef marks food. They feed everyone. Oh. They have enough for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and on top of that, whenever they rest, they additionally get some other bonuses. Like, they also calm. Um, and they have a bunch of upgrades to do different things. Uh, something that they don't do in the current build, but they will in the next one is when resting, they can give people, like, temporary hit points. Um, you can make them feel better than 100%, so they can take an extra hit without consequences. That seems super valuable, uh, considering how much resting factors into this game. Um, actually, in practice, so far, resting has factored in very little, which is why they're going to get this buff. <laughs> ah. um, so far, we've had very little reason to rest and heal. Um, maybe beyond like once or twice per expedition, which is too few. So the chef is going to get some buffs um, so that they can have more reason to rest. Needs a bit of balance then to make it a little mm -hmm. more aggressive. Um, there's the exorcist who has wards that they can use to negate danger. They can protect the party from trouble. They can spend their wards to retreat for free or negate traps that trigger. Um... So they just have protective abilities, which is nice. Uh, there's one of my personal favorites, the Grenadier. Their role is to uh, destroy area cards. They can pick an adjacent space and say, that doesn't exist anymore. It's gone now. I mean, that's one way to deal with those obstacle cards. Um, they can do it twice per expedition which is uh you know enough <laughs> i'd yeah, say yeah 
Uh, just that card's gone. Don't want to deal with it. Any monsters that were on it also dead. Any treasure that was on it also gone. I blew it up. Everything there is gone. Now we're now we have a free path. I did it. I cleared the paths. Um, there is the keeper who just has a huge hand of cards. They draw four extra cards at the start of the game at the expedition, and they can trade cards with other players. Oh, so. Um, you asked about trading favor tokens. Well, the, the keeper can't do that, but they can trade cards so people can get what they need to do stuff. Or so you can hand more cards to the grenadier so they can blow up more cards. Because um, the limiter on that is their hand size, which is very small. Oh, that's interesting. That means you can kind of work the party together to keep fueling people with uh, get-out-of-trouble-free cards. Mm-hmm. That is the keeper's job, to make sure everyone else does their jobs best. Hmm. There's the muscle, who is extremely good at breaking barriers. Um, it doesn't cost them a turn to destroy barriers, and they can still, so they can still explore or rest after doing it. Uh, and they can also use break barriers to destroy clubs, which are dead ends. They can make it so, hey, this isn't a dead end anymore. We can go where we want. Oh, nice. Um. And then there is the ranger, who explores two cards at a time instead of one. They get to flip over, they draw two cards and decide which one is the area they're moving into, and then the second one they place somewhere next to the area they moved into. Um, so they get to uh, adjust the map more than others because, well, they know the way. <laughs> they're good with the wilderness and exploring. Right. And then lastly, one of the most popular roles in my playtest so far, the sneak. Uh, they don't get noticed by enemies immediately, if they're alone. So they can explore by themselves, and they will never trigger traps or random attacks from enemies. If they flip up spades or clubs, they can just keep going. Um, they, can't, they still can't go through areas with enemies, like they have to turn back, um, but they don't trigger fights automatically so they can explore safely which a lot of people like because safe is good <laughs> people do like to fall back on that mm -hmm. especially in a game that i'm advertising as dangerous um <laughs> people like not being in trouble just gotta pump those numbers up all right so that releases us with the combat rules i believe right yes there are also eight of those, because I like symmetry, and because I thought that would be a good enough number that parties could have a lot of variety in who they want in their team. Absolutely. Um, first up is the Assassin. The Assassin does a fuck ton of damage. That's their job. Um, they pick a target, and they get to add plus one to their die roll, um, which is bigger than it sounds, because again, the numbers can go from like one to eight, mm -hmm. generally. You, mo around 40% of your rolls will be between 1 and 6. Right. Um, another 40% will be a miss. Higher than that is only like 15% of the time. Um, and their bonus increases by plus 1 each turn that they continue attacking the same target. Oh, there it is. So it's plus 1, then plus 2, then plus 3. Yeah, there it is. There's there's the killer right there. There's the kicker, yep. As long as they keep focused on the same enemy, the assassin can just destroy them eventually. And all of their improvements are 
crazy nonsense that makes them ridiculous. Um, one of my favorites being highly competitive. When you get a tie with someone else's point during a beatdown, you get plus one point. If you are now tied with someone else, repeat this process. Oh. The assassin wins ties, period. Uh, next we have the brawler, one of the two tanky roles in this build. Um, among these eight rules. Their role is to charge in and stick close to someone like Glue. Uh, whenever an enemy moves away from you, you can. whenever your target moves away from you, you can immediately close in for free. Um, so they can just stick to you like Glue and prevent you from doing other stuff. Um, their weapon is Mighty also, which means that whenever they hit you, they can move you one range away from someone else. So you can push them away from all your friends. And then follow them. And then follow them for free. Um, that sounds like the video game uh, dynamic in the new Doom, where it's all based on chasing and, se and separating the critters from each other. It's something like that. I haven't played the new Doom. Um, uh, when, when I, of them. I meant to say, uh, yeah, the, the 2016 and its sequel. Like They both have that gameplay yeah. style where it really incentivizes just running straight at one of them and never stopping. Yeah, that's the brawler's job. Um, also kind of the assassin's job, but they're doing it to kill you. The brawler's doing it so you can't focus on anyone but them mm -hmm. because they're constantly just pushing you away from all their friends. Aggressive. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the chemist, which the one player's played it so far friggin' loved the chemist. Their thing is that their weapon is explosive. They throw grenades um, that can hit a second target beyond your main target. And... Their unique ability is that they can add extra tags to those things once per combat. They can add the fire tag so your explosion sets everyone on fire. Sticky so it roots them all in place. Holy, which gives you plus two point against things. Or an explosive plus two so it can hit up to four targets instead of just two. That's pretty cool. It reminds and me of unique... It reminds me a lot of the, the Firestarter Destiny from Fellowship, actually. Like, once you take it, you, you the person, permanently have, like, different attribute tags to play around with. Yeah. Kind of like that. Um, but the tags are a little more important here than they were over in Fellowship. Yeah. I, I've been Partially making... because I didn't make very many tags in Fellowship, and then I was kind of limited by that. Mm. This game has a lot more tags, and all of them matter more. <laughs> cool. So it's a very rock, paper, scissors for different situations and scenarios. Um, I mean, you kind of want to use all of them every combat. <laughs> it's uh, just a matter of which one you use when. Pile them on. Mm -hmm. Um, they also have, uh, every roll has a unique bonus, which lets them, um, if you roll high, you can get a bonus on your roll, or you can put yourself in danger with a regular roll to add a bonus. Um, and their bonus is extra spicy. They can add another tag from their list to their attack this turn. And this extra tag from Extra Spicy uh, doesn't count towards their once-per-combat limit and can even be tags they've already used. Oh. So you could be make a fire-sticky weapon so they're both stuck in place and on fire so you can just stand back and let them burn. Um, next roll up is the Daredevil. Their thing is uh, when they're in danger, they get increased points. They can take damage to increase their points. Their job is to win. <laughs> their their shtick is... At any cost. Their shtick seems to be risk. 
Yeah, they're highly risk-reward. They have the largest damage track of anyone. They can take the most hits, but they also, like, hurt themselves. Um, and they can get extremely high dice rolls very quickly. Um, and that's their job. Just win the beatdown. Be the one who wins the beatdown. Whatever it takes. Uh, there's the gunner, whose job is that they can, instead of rolling to attack, they can just deal 5 damage. That's their thing. Um, they have to be at sight range. If enemies are closer than that, you can't take your steady shot. Um, so their their gameplay is about keeping at the right range so they can deal consistent steady damage. Um, and if they do try the regular dice rolling, their bonus is deal 5 damage. <laughs> they get it anyway. Mm-hmm. But only if they get the bonus. So there's a little bit... They still have reason to do the gambling. Um, if you want to, if you want to go for broke, but, uh, what are the generally they can play it safe. Oh, and also their steady shot happens before the beatdown, so you could, they can finish off weakened enemies before they even get to fight back. Oh, cool. What are the damage numbers like in this game? You, you mentioned, you know, them, you've mentioned a few numbers already, like five damage from the gunner and that being sounding yeah. pretty consistent. What, what are the number ranges looking like? Um... Right now, like, I'm still working on it. I think I need to inflate them. But, for example, like, a boss and The boss fight that I played in a game I did yesterday, uh, she had 24 HP with Regeneration 2. And again, they killed her in two turns. <laughs> Ouch. Well, yeah. Even through the fast healing. So I was like, okay, maybe if I, like, doubled that, she'd do something more. Um, so that's what I'm looking at. Right now, how it works is I have... Um, Monsters set to either show up in groups or in solos. And solo enemies have their HP scale with the number of players. Smart. Whereas uh, groups have the number of enemies scale with the number of players. So like um, like the explodey guys that I was talking about a couple times now, they showed up as a pack of five because they're up against four skull diggers. So one plus the number of enemies. Oh. Um. The boss had 8 HP per player. So actually, you know, she had 32 HP and they still killed her in two turns. Jesus. Ouch. Um, so something I might be doing is make bosses so they're like 20 HP plus 8 per player or something like that. What, um, uh, what you could do is mm -hmm. the bosses could be built into hard-capped phases. So like... Imagine... This boss actually did have that. So <laughs> they killed the first phase in two turns, and then they went and killed the second phase also in two turns. Yeah, just uh, <laughs> make it so that the HP bar that they have, like even if you do damage over the HP bar, mm -hmm. it doesn't flow into the next form. It's it's done. So if you do thirty damage and had one HP left, that is actually the solution I used in Panic of the Dojo. Oh really? Um, yeah. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> Bosses have that where they have. Um, a boss counts as a, um, you can give them any number of health bars, and they get one turn per round equal to their health bars. Oh. And when you drop them a current health bar to zero, you can't hurt them anymore this turn. Yeah, it doesn't overflow. You're done. Huh. There's no overflow. And they lose an um, action. That's really cool. They don't, actually, because of oh. how the, di the, the action economy of the game works. Oh. <laughs> they don't lose their turns, they just lose their health bars. <laughs> I guess that makes sense, because then by the time you get to the death spiral, the boss is pointless. Yes. Yeah. Um, never mind. 
I don't know game design. Don't listen to me. <laughs> Panic at the Dojo has a back and forth enemy turn, player turn, enemy turn, player turn until everyone has had a turn. Right. So to make a boss equal to multiple players, I gave them multiple turns. Yeah, that sounds so that, like really good. <laughs> it's a good game that not enough people play because um, they haven't heard of it. Anyway, that's not this game though. <laughs> um. Are those all? A lot of that stuff is in the combat engine of this game, though. Yeah, you. So if you want a preview of how this is working, it's not CeeLo. It is a very different dice engine. But a lot of my combat, like theory, is in the same place. You can see a lot of the shape of uh, your different games, Mm -hmm. kind of in this play test, like the tags from Fellowship. Like just the the tag economy is something that you see kind of just starting to come into its own in the second edition. Yeah, it's um. Tags are probably the only thing from the Apocalypse engine that are still in this thing. Um, There was a draft like a year and a half ago of this game that was powered by the Apocalypse, but I hated it. (laughs) I didn't like the direction it was going. Um, So when I started redesigning it so each game was completely different, each section was its own rules, uh, that clicked a lot better for me. Yeah, the three-pillar design is intriguing. Like the idea Mm -hmm. that, that each game is its own kind of instance. Are those all the combat yeah. rules? Do we get to the last one? Uh, no, that was actually only half of them. Oops. My bad. Yep, that's fine. We got sidetracked. It happens. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll go through these next ones pretty quick. We have the knight, the other tanky one. They can taunt things. They can force an enemy to change their target to the knight. Um, you know. And then they also have ridiculously good armor and defenses, so they're hard to hurt. Um, they can actually... They, their their main weapon is has the armor tag, which uh, armor just blocks a hit. Normally, um, armor like you buy around town has a number of uses before it's used up and gone. The your your rolls weapons uh, do not have uses. You have your weapon forever, so the knight can block one hit every turn forever. Ah, there you go. Uh, so they want to draw aggro. Uh, then we have the medic, who can heal allies during play, or during combat. They get special healing items um, that they can only use in combat. And when they use items on allies, their dodge is increased by two for the turn. So that way enemies attacking them probably won't hit them. Um, and lastly, we have the trickster, who deals courage damage instead of HP damage. Um, enemies with... Whose courage hits zero, try to run away instead of fight. Hmm. Uh, if that happens from other roles dropping their courage to zero, uh, they might show up again later in another fight. Um, enemies who ran away can show up again. The trickster has the special ability Terrorize. Uh, enemies that run away from you will never show up again. <laughs> so once they scare someone off, that's just as good as if you killed them. Okay. Uh, and that is the eight combat rules. Very cool. It sounds like there's a lot of different ways to play the game. Like, just from the fact that you have three rules, quote-unquote, and then each player has three, and then there's a bunch of players, and you can all kind of do different strategies. That's really appealing. Mm-hmm. Just in the core book, too. Like, just out the gate, it's built like that. Yes. I want there to be a lot of options from the get-go, and then more later, because that's cool. So... You go into the dungeon, you get the treasure, you get the marrow. What are the kind mm-hmm. of cool, like, 
the rewards you get from the dungeon, do any of them change your character fundamentally? Like, are there, like, cool magic items that... There are cool magic items, yes. Um, nothing that currently changes your character, though should absolutely include some stuff that changes you. Because this is that's this is a horror game, that sounds totally in keeping. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe one of your arms becomes a tentacle or something. I don't know. I should do something like that. That's fun. <laughs> um... But yeah, there are currently there are magic items. Currently, right now, the ones I have are kind of basic. They're stuff like healing potions, um, are an artifact that is actually very good to get because they can remove a scar in the middle of the dungeon. You don't have to come home and wait for your broken arm to heal. You can take a potion, and now it's better. Um, which ability, ways to cure scars are few and far between outside of time. Time and uh, those playbooks you were talking about, the rolls. I mean, none of the rolls even remove scars. Um, you have to do society actions to remove them. Oh, okay. I'm, 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 I misunderstood with the medic then. Or the, not the medic, the, yes. um, the, the society medic. Yeah, the, the, the nurse. Nurse. Um, the nurse is good at doing the society actions that remove scars, yes. Uh, uh, they remove an extra scar when doing them. So they heal you faster than other players would. Um, the other, the other items, the other artifacts that I have in the build are things like, um, some magic swords, some different kinds of treasures you can find in different places. One of them is a boomstick, a shotgun that shoots dynamite. Oh, God. Uh, because why wouldn't you want a shotgun that shoots dynamite? Um... And that's it so far. There aren't a ton of them, but I should absolutely have a bunch in the full game. Right. Uh, I want to write just a bunch of zany crap. Um, And transformative items I hadn't even considered, but I should have. That's a great idea, and I will be including some, because (laughs) that sounds fun. And I know exactly how to do it, too. It'd be like, replace one of the scars on your sheet with a different one. That's exciting. That, that, that's something to look forward to, that. Like, your knight can no longer have a broken arm because you replaced your bones with, with, like, I don't know, something weird. You replaced your bones with machine parts. Hmm. From the rust. From the rust. So now you have cyborg arms. Now, your scar with breaking your arms has been replaced with, uh, your, your arms can jam. <laughs> All right, that seems like an excellent segue then, talking about kind of the, 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 the appropriate amount of transformation and body horror in this game to like the themes and inspiration of it. Can you tell us kind of where this game came from, from uh, what the things you like and enjoy? Um, I mean, I've always been a fan of horror. I just haven't liked most horror tabletop RPGs, so I've been meaning to take a crack at it for forever. You mean you don't like um, horror tabletop RPGs that have the equipment list from Shadowrun and give you the stat block for damaging Dagon? <laughs> you don't like that? You don't think that's evocative? I mean, you're saying it like I didn't put a stat block on all my horror things, too. <laughs> you don't like doing gear shopping before you go do the dungeon crawl to I'm go I'm also fight. doing that in this game! <laughs> <laughs> uh, you fool. I'm just making it simpler. Um, Look, I didn't say... I'm making I, it easy to be scared. <laughs> I didn't say I didn't like four hours of shopping in Shadowrun Horror. I'm just saying I would like it to be easier and simpler. Uh, um, yeah, a lot of horror games are kind of too complicated um, on the wrong parts, I think. 
Yeah, that that's I, actually a pretty solid statement, actually. I want the complicated part to be the choices you have to make. Hmm, yeah. Like whether or not you want to bring Pyramid Head on fire back to your town because he's a really good blacksmith, but he's also literally Pyramid Head on fire with a giant fuck-off sword. You picked the wrong example. Everyone's going to do that 100% of the time, and it's going to turn into a, da- <laughs> it's going to turn into a visual novel. Uh, I mean, if that's how it plays out, that's fine. <laughs> you can go date Pyramid Head if you want. Tell me how that goes. When you do the Valentine's... At me on Twitter about it. <laughs> Do a Valentine's Day edition, being like, "What if we went? To, call it. What if we went into the dungeon and instead of fighting, we kissed Pyramid Head? There, done. Seven thousand. All right, I'm gonna write that down for a Valentine's expansion idea. Seven thousand triple platinum on DTRPG. The beloved things, monsters that kill you with kindness. Yeah. So horror is a big inspiration. What about like from gameplay point of view? There's there's a lot of different games that are kind of living in Skull Diggers as far as I've seen it so far. Um, yeah, dungeon diving isn't exactly new. It's kind of like <laughs> it's where the games, it's where RPGs started. Yeah. Um, and I've always wanted it, wanted to like it more than I do. So, you know, at some point I wanted to take a crack at it, and the I figured. The idea for combining horror was honestly actually just Silent Hill in general, because I realized that that those gameplay are literally just you're going into dungeons, solving puzzles, and then beating up a boss monster, and then you move to the next area and do it again. I mean, not I no. Like, this is literally dungeon diving, yeah. except through a weird horror realm. It's I was dun- like, you know, these this kind of fits. It's dungeon diving for people who can't afford a psychologist. Yeah. Um. And I kind of wanted to just, I don't know. The three pillars thing is what led me to make it a dungeon diving game in the first place, because that was originally inspired by D&D. So I wanted to make a dungeon diving game. Um, The part where it also became horror was where I realized that this would be a way to put a fresh spin on it. um, That other people aren't doing as much. Uh, a lot of people write horror games. A lot of people write dungeon games. There are very few that are both. And, like, the market for it's kind of blowing up as far as creative stuff goes. Like, Darkest Dungeon's the perfect example. Mm-hmm. People really like it. I've played through it a bunch. I've never beaten it. I have it also played it a bunch and also never beaten it because right? it's too long. I just stopped, <laughs> like, like uh, probably halfway through the game. There's a point just... where it just gets too hard, um, which I'm fine if that also happens here in Skull Diggers. If you play for a while and never really end your campaign, eventually it's just like, we don't play more because... We've seen all there is to see. That's fine by me. We did it. We, that, we, that's the full experience, the same as it is with Darkest Dungeon. We extracted the joy from it. It's done now. Yeah, that's perfectly fine. Um, it's also part of why the game is designed as um, in this sort of episodic way. You go on your expedition, you defeat the bone, and then you go back to society, and then you chill out there until the next one shows up. Um. It leaves a very clean division between points of the game. Yeah, that's also really appealing. Like, um, wh- one of the things that reminded me a lot of was Mouse Guard. If you've played that... Oh, shoot, of course you... <laughs> I'm sorry, sometimes I forget. 
Sometimes I yeah, forget. I'm in a campaign right. of that that's being posted on the internet. It's a I pretty know. good game. I know. Uh, I feel silly. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> it's all good. The the one thing that really appealed to me about the three pillars kind of division is yeah, Mouse Guard has the player GM turn, and I we we ran through that in our game, and it was actually really interesting because every single game you play does it, but Mouse Guard was one of the few games that actually bothered to codify it. Yeah. And honestly, it's probably my favorite part of Mouse Guard is the player turn, GM turn division, where the yeah. GM runs a mission, and then when once the mission's over, or not always once the mission's over, sometimes in the middle, uh, player turn. Players, what do you want to do? Yeah. You run the mission. What are you, you doing with your extra time? Yeah. You do the mission, then you run your lives. Mm-hmm. And the fallout. It's very good. Um, so Skulldiggers is borrowing a little bit of that with the society turn expedition dichotomy. Yeah. Um, cause though there are three pillars, it's really just the two. Yeah. You're in society or you're out on an expedition. And then sometimes you'll have combat during expeditions. Sometimes you might have combat in society. Um, end of the game. Like if when those you... beasts that a sin speaker was kidnapping broke out of their cage and killed their owner. The end of the uh, game where you all ritualistically put around in the aristocrat. <laughs> for team building team building exercise and then you take all his money yeah. and live in his house you say, know as you do you say you were him the whole time with the puppeteer well the puppeteer can only mind control two people at a time that's okay. not gonna work so it's gonna be <laughs> it'll, it'll be the two people who come up that day to say that you're probably not the aristocrat you're like no tell him tell him no <laughs> and then two other uh, people show up you're like tell them no um yeah do you have any more questions because i think i am running out of things to talk about about the game because it's so many but i've said so many things i know it's great you've been carrying this interview it's been perfect a lot of times i worry that i over talk so you've just been doing great here so um moving away from inspirations we've already kind of gone over that and what uh skulldiggers is doing i want to pivot now to the kickstarter if that's all right with you oh yeah sure so um we've already talked about when the Kickstarter is starting, it'll be this Friday and... April for, 24th. Yeah, April 24th for people who have calendars and are in the future. Uh, how much are you looking to raise for Skulldiggers? This will be $11,000, which is... USD, right? Yeah, US dollars. Um, a little high, but it's what I need. I don't I have... I need about $5,000 for the fixed cost just to make it, and then the rest is honestly going into taxes and fulfillment. Right. I don't have the, the stats on hand, but is that comparable to Fellowship 2nd Edition, or is that a bit above or below? Um, I think my goal for Fellowship was 8,000, but it also blew through it to like 22 or 23,000 at the end. Look, people really like Fellowship. You're just going to have to it's come a to good terms game. with it. It's really good. <laughs> I'm not going to be upset that people like <laughs> Fellowship. It's good. I just wish people loved my other games as much. Um, that's okay. I, I know I have a best game. That's fine. Um... All right, so, so yeah, we were saying eleven thousand. Um, when do you think Skulldiggers, like the the final PDF slash, well, let, when do you figure the final PDF, and then when do you figure the physical book will be done? Um, final PDF is usually about a month before physical books, just because that's about how long the turnaround takes. Makes sense. Um, I am. I wrote on the Kickstarter January twenty twenty one is when I want the game to be out. Okay. I don't know if it'll take that long or if it'll take a little longer because it's hard to tell because this is probably my biggest project yet. <laughs> um, it, it definitely the only has thing, a lot of the, the most... only thing similarly complicated has been Panic at the Dojo, which also took a little longer than I estimated. 
So I added a little extra time over what I expect. We'll see if I can still make that or not. That makes sense. I mean, Skull Diggers, just from what we've been talking about, is a lot more bespoke and customized than um, the other games you've done. Like Fellowship, of course, had a framework before it that you were kind of able to yeah. bounce off of, but this is all kind of handmade. I mean, yeah, part of what makes Fellowship tick is the fact that it's very open. Um, I wrote ideas and rules to frame ideas. It's your job to actually make the material for Fellowship. Mm -hmm. uh, this game is a little different in that I am making a, I am making a world this time. The exact details of the world are a little up in the air, but there's um, there's a lot here that's defined. There are repeatable patterns. Yeah, and they need they need to work because every table is going to be interacting with them. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot here, a lot that people are going to like. I'm sure some people will be super into wanting to get the Evangelion robot people on board. Um, or maybe the plant people once that expansion is written. I'm desperately, and I do this with every new game we kind of look at, I'm desperately going through the catalog of ideas in my head and how I can make this game fit <laughs> those. Like, to, we'll, we'll talk about this a bit at the end, but just to segue to Fellowship briefly, it was Fellowship that made me think we could actually run Transformers, because no other game could do it. Every other yeah, game... I am uh, still surprised that that worked, honestly. <laughs> uh, it, it, it worked seamlessly. I didn't have to change one goddamn thing. But every yeah, other game... Yeah, which is a surprise to me, honestly, because I'm not too familiar with Transformers, but I didn't expect that to work. Oh, it's all there, and like the IDW <laughs> comics for them are really, really good for it. There, there's a like lot the going on. The extent of my Transformers knowledge is I know who Starscream is. Oh, man. But... <laughs> <laughs> um yeah for for this game i'm looking through that catalog seeing what kind of can be made to fit you know maybe maybe the game is different in my head where instead of it being you going to go fight the monsters in the tower it's about going to like capture or befriend them or any sort of things you know maybe it's about a modern game with real work job problems but I, i'm waiting for the, the final pdf before i start doing that work <laughs> I love games like this where, where like you've clearly built them with a very defined play loop in mind and seen how that play loop can apply to other ideas while still keeping the play loop like preserved. Uh, I look forward to hearing about whatever the fuck you do with that because you have done off-the-wall stuff with Fellowship. So. Well, thank you. We, we appreciate that. I'll pass that on to the gang. They always <laughs> like hearing that. Um, like... I'm not going to pretend I understand how you make it work. I'm just going to be happy that it does. <laughs> honest, honest to Christ, I just use the core book. Like, all, all the stuff I'm doing is in the Fellowship 2nd Edition book. It's just there. I just, I just saw it. I just wrote that good <laughs> by mistake. Um, anyway, With the right back to the Kickstarter questions for this one. <laughs> so the, the next natural question, now that we know kind of the, the, the release time frame, what are the kind of cool rewards that are, uh, do you think you might have loaded into this one? So I'm doing my basic structure that I've done in the past because it's worked um, and doing more complicated things in my experience uh, doesn't work. Yeah. So Fair. you can get the PDFs, you can get the books in print. Um, same fulfillment strategy as I'm always using. You buy, you pay me some, some of the cost now and you will order the book at cost when it's available. I'll have coupon codes to get them for the minimum value. Yeah, um, you only pay for what it costs to print it and what it costs to ship it. That's awesome. Everyone likes that. Yeah, um, and then I have my usual prestige goals, where for one hundred twenty dollars you can get me to sign both of your books and mail them to you personally. I think I did that for Fellowship. I'm excited for that one. 
Uh, yeah. Then I probably have a book with your name on it over in the corner of my room I'm waiting on. Aww, um, that's so cool. One. So, uh, and I also am doing two rewards that have been popular in the past, especially with Fellowship, is I'm going to have one that lets you design a monster that I will add to the game. Nice. And one that will let you design a role that I'll add to the game. Yeah, I, I love those rewards. They're they're perfect. They're they're always nice. Yeah. They're, uh, they, the they... first stretch goal will be right now my plan is for those extra things and extra roles to be Kickstarter exclusives. The first stretch goal will be I will put them in the third book. Oh, okay. With extra stuff. Um it'll, it'll be Unorthodox Tactics is the title I have for it. And it'll just be a grab bag of expansion content. That's super um, fun. without a focus. Then future stretch goals would be for expansions that are more focused, like a, an expansion of loam things, just an entire thing about the plant monsters that and their dungeons. Um, what happens if you recruit them in town? Different factions for them, different projects involving them. You sound Stuff like that. You sound really passionate about the plant monster faction. I'm gonna say you've brought it up a lot. We can <laughs> well, tell because it's, it's the next one. Yeah, it, it's also the only one that I have written in as this is going locked in for a stretch goal slot. Yeah. Um. After that, I've written. I want to write more expansions. I don't know what order I'll want to write these expansions in. So uh, this will fund those. So that way, when I finish them, you just get their PDFs if you back the Kickstarter. I just can't wait for uh, for it to be done so our town can be just covered in piranha plants. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'll need to include some projects for, like, anti-siege stuff so you can let a bone flourish for a little bit. Oh, yeah, that'd be cool. It'd be, like in, um, it'd be like in Fallout 4, where once you build your civilization, you can then play soldiers with them and let raids attack. Yeah. Yeah, kind of like that. You can let, finally let see your it all. The fences keep you safe for a bit. Yeah, the satisfaction of a job well done paying off with violence. Um, Automated violence. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, so you answered my question about stretch goals, actually, which was the next one on the list. Um, the final thing I kind of want to ask about Kickstarter-wise is who else is working on this with you? Um, who are you bringing on board? You know, editor, writer, artist side. Nobody, just me. Just you. This one is going to be all me. I don't intend to hire artists because I have a very specific look I want to do, um, which you can see in the Kickstarter art if you've seen it before. I haven't. If you... not, you will see it soon because I'm going to link it to you in a second. Yeah, throw me that link. I'll throw it in the podcast episode. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but you're doing the art then, that means. Yes, I am doing the drawings. Oh, that's um, cool. Because I want to have a very sketchy style to it yeah like, I, like pencil drawn yeah i see what you're going for that looks cool mm -hmm. um very I like have, old timey journal yeah i will probably hire somebody to do the cover art because i want that to look good but um i haven't decided who or planned that out that'll come later makes sense um all right our budget has been a big part of the holdup and other things in the past, and part a large part of Kickstarter costs. Yeah, art is the uh, perennial like pain yeah. point for every TTRPG Kickstarter I've ever talked yep. uh, talked with. So I'm just gonna draw everything myself. I just want to draw a bunch of sketches of creepy monster things, and then just put them in the book as is. 
That's awesome. Um, and it's fine if they don't look great. I'm not the best artist, but I'm good enough. Um, <laughs> and also, it kind of makes them look creepier if they don't look right. Um, like those old-timey sketches of what elephants and tigers looked like from third-hand <laughs> accounts that no one's ever uh, well, seen Well, not quite like that. More like, have you played off? I have not played off, but um, if you're familiar I know... with the art style, yeah, that's kind of what I'm going for. Is like, you know what's going on with these? They look creepy and weird and incorrect, um, and that's what I'm going for. That's perfect. All right, so this is your, I think, sixth Kickstarter, right? That sounds right. Is there any sort of, like, thoughts or ideas you've had that you'd, like, throw at other people who are looking to, like, kickstart stuff for TTRPGs? Like, any sort of uh, lessons you've learned you want to uh, put out there? Because um, you've been pretty so, successful with Fellowship. Like, that, that yeah. thing blew, blew it out of the water. <laughs> well, that one also had a following to begin with. My, the two Kickstarters before that both barely passed by. Um, Final Bid and Panic at the Dojo just squeaked by the finish line. Um, they still funded, though. They did so still you're, fund. You're doing I have yet right. to have one fail, so I'm still doing all right. Um, my main thing, biggest piece of advice, always put more time in than you expect to actually need. Like, if you think it'll take you six months to write thing, tell people it'll be done in nine months. Because it'll probably take you ten. <laughs> mm. Or twelve. Um, give yourself a little buffer time which, again, I'm doing with this one. I don't expect it to take a full nine months like I have planned, but it might. It very easily could. I have a lot I want to write here, and work output can be inconsistent. Things can come up. Life gets in the way all the time. Um, and also keep it simple. Keep the, co the scope of your project on your project. Don't make it wider than that. Um... Like like I was saying before, like if you, while it would be nice to have stuff like T-shirts or playing cards specific for your thing, the more stuff you add to your project, the less likely, the more difficult it will be to actually finish all of it. Coordination during fulfillment is something you do have to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. um, and lastly, word of mouth is huge. Tell everyone about it. Literally everyone. Tell your mom. Tell your mom's friends. Tell your cousin. Tell your cousin's mom. Tell your friend. Tell your friend's dad. Just mix it up a little. Um, tell everyone you know, because some of them might want it. Some of them might want to support you just for being you, because they like you. Um, but they won't unless you tell them about it. Mm -hmm. Word of mouth. They gotta like, know it exists. Publicity is um, a huge deal for these types of projects. Having a yeah. platform. Okay. Well... I think that's everything I have about uh, Skulldiggers, unless you have anything else you felt that we just haven't been able to bring up that you want to throw out there. Uh, no, I think that about covers it. I've, I can't think of anything else to cover because I've talked about basically everything currently in the books. That's perfect. Um, well, I think then, um, so it's time for us to kind of wind down then. So again, listeners, April 24th, that's coming up. Uh, that's where you can check out the Kickstarter. The link will be in the description of the episode. But I think it's time for us to sign off. So, I was Devin. And Peter. And Noam. And this is sponsored by Nobody. Signing off. <laughs>